Howdy, y'all! This episode of South of Scruffy Podcast is brought to you by our friends at Cosmetic. Cosmetic Hemp Pain Cream helps ease aches, pains, inflammation, and arthritis with their proprietary CBD-infused skin care solutions. Each bottle of Cosmetic Hemp Pain Cream is infused with 400 milligrams of their patented proprietary CBD solution. Be kind to your skin and go to Cosmedicated.com. That's C-A-U-S-E, Medicated.com. And use promo code SOS20 at checkout for 20% off of your entire order. All right, podcast time. Welcome into South of Scruffy Podcast. My name is Ben Fields. This is my podcast. Thank you for being here. This is a big one for me. As a lot of you guys know, when I started this podcast two and a half years ago, I started with a mission to kind of tell the story of the movers and shakers in the arts and entertainment scene in Knoxville, the people who are making moves, impacting our culture, impacting the art scene and what we have going on here that makes such a great city. And if you put a Mount Rushmore of that together, Ashley Caps might be the first face on it. Ashley Caps is here today. I've been trying to get uh, together with Ashley for a while. We chatted back at the end of last year and with big ears happening and planning that festival. It took us a while to get together, but we did. And I'm so grateful that he uh, was able to come by here and spend an hour with me. I, I t- told Ashley multiple times during the interview that yeah, Bonnaroo changed my life. It was when my eyes were opened to live music and that seeing shows could be so much fun. And Ashley Caps created Bonnaroo. First one was in 2002. And next week is the 20th anniversary of the first Bonnaroo. Ashley has been promoting and booking concerts in Knoxville since I think 1979, he said. His company, AC Entertainment, has booked shows at the Orange Peel in Asheville, the Tennessee Theater, the Hot Summer Nights concert series back in the 90s, which was my first ever concert, 1994, I believe it was. So Ashley Caps has impacted your life if you've seen a concert in the Southeast in the last 30 years. There's a good chance of it anyway. So to be able to chat with him and, and kind of nerd out about, about the scene and ask questions that I've had for him for 20 years since his events opened my eyes to what life could be like and what being a fan of live music and music in general really is. So this was really a kind of a starstruck moment for me, maybe as starstruck as I've ever been, uh, just because of the impact that Ashley has directly or indirectly had on my life. I've been in a movie with Chevy Chase before. And I was not as starstruck. But spending this time with Ashley was truly a dream come true. And he's an incredibly kind person. I hope you guys enjoy our chat. So let's get into it. This is me talking with Ashley Caps. We're doing the pop cast. Ashley, thanks for thanks for coming, man. It's good to meet you. <laughs> it's good to be here. Thanks for asking me. I'm glad it uh Glad we were finally able to cross paths. So. Me too. Uh, I'm sure the big years time of year is really crazy for you. And uh, that in between the, the beginning of the year <laughs> and when big years happens for the first time in what, was it three years that it happened? It was the first time that it actually happened in three years. I yeah. mean, we were all teed up, ready to go in 2020, but we had to cancel two weeks before the festival. So. I remember that. That was That's when COVID became real for me, is when big years got canceled. Believe me, uh, that's when it became real for me, too. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure it was a very tough decision, and I know that the music industry was, live music in general, was one of the most hard hit industries by COVID. True. 
but it was almost like a, it was symbolic when Big Ears did come back this year because it felt like maybe this thing might be over with. Well, it, it certainly felt that way to us. Uh, not 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 so much that it's over completely because we knew that there's still you know concerns and warning signs out there, but it certainly felt uh, possible to gather once again and have uh, you know great musical experiences. Is that your baby? Is Big Ears your 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 favorite kind of your passion project? I guess. Well, it, it is now. Uh, it, it's really my only project since mm. I, uh, you know, I, I left AC Entertainment and Live Nation back. Uh, well, officially on March the thirty first of twenty twenty one. But I I had sold my interest in uh, Bonnaroo and the remaining interest in AC Entertainment uh, just before COVID hit uh, mm. in uh, early twenty twenty. So um, so sure at this point I would you know over the years though my my uh, my passion projects have changed certainly uh, Bonnaroo was a huge passion project mm. for many many years and uh, you know I, I still consider it to be my baby even though the baby's gone off to college and uh, is uh, entering adulthood <laughs> but um, but you know the the focus you know the Tennessee theater was my baby for a long time. Mm. Uh, so, uh, you know, I, th- you know, I'm, I'm kind of a project oriented person and, uh, and so the, the, the new most exciting project for me is definitely big ears. So if you look at the Bonnaroo lineup from 2002, was that the first year of yes. Bonnaroo? It looks a lot different than it does now. It sure does. So when you were, did you program the first, all of the first few Oh, Just yes. through AC Entertainment? Uh, well, uh, me and my partner, Jonathan Mayers at Superfly, did you know essentially all of the booking for the first, I don't remember now, six, seven, eight years. Mm. And then we started bringing other people into the mix. Um, uh, John stepped out of it uh, several years before as far as having an active role in the booking. I... Um, I continue to have an active role in the booking up uh, through 2019. Okay. Uh, not, uh, you know, but more and more relying on younger people, uh, you know, people with their finger on the pulse of uh, the, you know, what was going on in the music business now. Mm-hmm. Because the music, you know, the, the world of culture and music is continually shifting. You know, there are, uh, you know, there are always new artists emerging. There's new styles of music emerging. There are new interests emerging. And I think uh, for a festival to stay vital and fresh, uh, you know, you have to be willing to embrace change. So what was it about the jam band scene and the jam band kind of hippie culture around the turn of the 21st century <laughs> that made you decide that that was the route to go to program a festival? Well, there are there are several factors, really. Um, we had um, I had a relationship with a lot of those bands. Mm. Uh, we brought Fish to play a club on Cumberland Avenue back in 1991. Mm-hmm. I had worked with Widespread Panic at Ellicaroos for the first time, and had continued to work with them all over the southeast, uh, all through the 90s. Um, and certainly, uh, you know, String Cheese Incident and other bands that are associated with that scene in various ways. So the relationship existed. Hmm. Also, there was, um, you know, I, I think it's an audience 
that is very passionate about music. Sure. And they're also very passionate about, uh, you know, the, the shifting experience that those bands offer. Because th- these are not bands that go in and play the same show every night, right? Uh, that you know, there there's a there's an ebb and flow and a, and a sh- you know almost a, a, a shift. Well, not almost. It uh, the focus of the music shifts. It, it's improvisational. Uh, no no two nights are quite the same. So there's also an interest in in seeing multiple nights to uh, right. to really. Uh, delve into that experience and i think it was an aud- it's an audience that's predisposed to travel mm-hmm. to have those experiences and an audience that had shown that they were interested in the camping festival format through um well you know especially through fish. uh the fish events that that, that they had started created in the 90s which was uh, uh something of an inspiration for us to say the least we we drew a lot from uh the experiences that fish had there were other things too that were really instrumental to uh, Bonnaroo's success. I, I will say that, you know, while while there is this like a moniker jam bands, mm-hmm. there's a tremendous amount of variety mm-hmm. uh, under that label. It, it's not like one kind of music. There right. are there are bands that draw really heavily from bluegrass or from jazz, or are from you know rock and roll, or sometimes various kinds of you know African music or sure. whatever. And, and so that also offered a core around which to develop a really diverse set of musical offerings. So that you know, the, our initial programming was, you know, in many ways influenced by the various musical tangents that we could explore that had had uh, a major influence on the headlining bands of the festival. So you know, you go from a band like String Cheese Incident to Bela Fleck. To the Del McCurry band, sure, and uh, and 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 so that uh, that gave us uh, an interesting template to uh, think about programming a festival from. And last but not least, uh, although this came this came somewhat after the fact, uh, uh, you know, not not in the immediate stages of planning, but all of these bands had pioneered the use of the internet. And it's it's interesting to remember, but, you know, when we launched Bonnaroo, the internet, as far as something that people were very actively involved with, was in its infancy. Mm. Uh, there was no social media, for instance. But um, <clears throat> many of these bands had... Um, pioneered the use of the internet to have a direct link to their fans through websites, through emails, Mm -hmm. and through discussion groups. Right. And so they had the ability to to reach out to their fan base directly and tell them Mm -hmm. what was going on, which was uh, proved to be a really pivotal moment in the success of Bonnaroo from year one. Not to mention things like archive.org that had these tapers oh, that, yeah, sure. that, that were providing the shows in their entirety uh, for the the listeners to, of the band, the fans of the bands to not just be able to discuss it among themselves, but also be able to just download a show for free that was an audience recording. Of course. And that's the Grateful Dead scene, people passing tapes around and... You know. Well, and all of this speaks to, I think, a, a deep passion for music. Mm-hmm. So if, if I had to like wrap it up into to one description, it's that. This was an audience that had a, a really deep passion for music that's uh, greater than perhaps uh, most people's. 
and uh, and it proved to be the perfect base from which to launch Bonnaroo. And you know, Rolling Stone called Bonnaroo one of the top fifty moments that changed rock and roll. Right? Is that that's true? Uh, so. They did that pretty early on. That came out, you know, after the first or second Bonnaroo. Maybe. It did. It was. It was. I don't remember the year exactly, but it was pretty early in the in in the Bonnaroo history. But looking at at it from twenty years later, it is without question one of the moments that changed rock and roll and live music forever. Because, and and I know that you did draw. Yeah, from inspiration has been written about. You've you've spoken about it before. You, the the model for the camping festival w- was uh, perhaps inspired by Fish and the Clifford Ball and It Festival and all those things that happened in the Northeast in the in the nineties. And you did kind of feed uh, feed this monster of of the 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 jam band scene, the people that like to see that music and built that community of a camping festival which wasn't happening a lot at the time it seems like but now you have a completely different card uh, or completely different programming for the festival completely different headliners but they have adopted that sentiment that you guys were drawing off of when you started the festival i don't think if you started bonnaroo today with the lineup that you had it would be as big of a success without the without the uh, without the foundation that was laid by the, those first few years uh, that that built a culture for this kind of thing to happen. Well, <clears throat> that's the key word, uh, building the culture. And the evolution of Bonnaroo was incremental. Uh, we 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 took this this core concept and we evolved it year after year gradually. I think uh, the big pivotal year where we started to break open what it was possible to present out there was when we brought Radiohead and Tom Petty, mm. uh, which was not without its controversy because sure. uh, there's there's always some uh, resistance to change. Bonnaroo but, sold out, <laughs> you know. <laughs> there, there was a little. There's always a little bit of that, no matter what you do. Right. Um, sure. But the, um, you know, our model also. We, we looked a lot to Europe for inspiration mm. because unlike the United States where the summer touring business was primarily focused on outdoor amphitheaters, which meant basically, you know, an artist doing a show each night, maybe right. with an opening act or two, Europe was, uh, you know, the home of festivals. Yeah. There were literally literally hundreds of festivals all over Europe of various kinds. Some of them downtown in plazas. Sure. And some of them out, uh, you know, on, you know, incredible patches of farmland like Glastonbury. Right. And these festivals had a tradition that went back decades. Uh, Glastonbury was first launched in 1970. And we started asking the question, why not here? Sure. And, um, there was certainly a checkered past. I think, uh, you know, you certainly look at the history of Woodstock. Yeah. And, right. and you know, the, those were iconic events, but there were, there were a lot of problems, especially in the, I mean, there was a lot of problems in 1969 with Woodstock. Yeah. 99 uh, was you know, a big problem. 99 too. was a big problem. Yeah. And, and, you know, the, um, the one commitment we made was we wanted to create a festival that we ourselves 
wanted to attend. Mm. You know, we we were the audience mm. for that festival. Uh, you know, we we uh, we loved the music. We loved the idea of a festival. So from the very beginning, we were trying to create the very best festival that we could possibly imagine. And we had the opportunity to turn to some extraordinary people for our staff to help bring that vision to fruition. So we didn't uh, we didn't cut corners on that. We brought in the highest level of expertise throughout the country that we could possibly find. Mm. Uh, you know our you know from and, and this involves a lot of uh, you know things that you know people don't necessarily always think of with a festival, but like how do you park? all of these people? Uh, how do you get them into the site? Uh, you know, how do you manage the roads? How do you, you know, all, all of these logistics, how do you support 80,000 people camping together for a four-day weekend? What, what do you need as an infrastructure that makes that possible? It's like building a small city. So many of the people that we brought in really are their their relationship to the music business is basically these days about doing festivals mm. uh, but they are very experienced in doing major projects and sometimes major events so uh so that that was our commitment I think from the very beginning that set Bonnaroo apart was the the commitment to do it right and to have the greatest experience for the fans and the artists that we could possibly manage. Now, did it take us a few years to work out a lot of kinks and logistics? Absolutely. We're still working out, you know, kinks and logistics or sure. the Bonnaroo team is, I'm, I'm not involved anymore, but you know, it, it's really a never ending process. But, um, but I think that deep commitment and the European model that, you know, this is possible if you do it right. Mm. And if you look at it as a long-term project and not simply as a, a flash in the pan that might never happen again. And that, that I think, was the foundation for Bonnaroo's success. So do you think there was apprehension from the music business uh because of the the checkered past that you talked about uh to do something like Bonnaroo and that's why the space was kind of uninhabited at the time with festivals like Bonnaroo it wasn't long after the first Bonnaroo that Coachella picked up and you know some of these other festivals started either coming back or 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 kind of adopting the model and and I guess you know the question is did it take a little bit of guts to to do something uh to build something like that knowing uh, knowing that there have been some rough, uh, uh, some rough experiences that have happened around camping festivals in the past. Yes, but mostly I would say that we were simply defying conventional wisdom at the time, hmm. and the conventional wisdom, which I think was a misinterpretation of what had gone down with festivals before a misanalysis, if you will. Mm. But the, uh, the the conventional wisdom was U.S. audiences do not want to go to festivals. I heard that directly from many people, mm. that people in the United States do not want to go to music festivals. Now, to me, there was plenty of 
evidence that this was not true. Right. Uh, bluegrass festivals being one of them. Sure. Merle Fest was a huge success yeah. already. Certainly New Orleans Jazz and Heritage Festival. Sure. People sure do like going to that. And they did back <laughs> in the 1980s, too, and the 90s. So, so uh, you know, and for many people, what they were talking about also was camping festivals, which right. is definitely a a different beast but yeah and and you also had an industry that invested a tremendous amount in outdoor amphitheaters mm. so uh there you know there's all you know once you've invested in a certain uh way of doing things there's a resistance to a new way of doing things sure um so so yeah it, it, we, we were definitely uh, contrarians at the point, and and for many, 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 many years, uh, there were people who, uh, you know, who were very skeptical non-believers. Sure. In uh, in the entire festival concept, and the, of course, it's not for everyone. So there's a lot of people who just uh, don't want to go to festivals. Right. You know. So it's a, uh, you know, it's a choice that a lot of people make. It's not everyone's cup of tea. What was the why did you choose Manchester? I mean, you hear this, you hear this uh, stat about Knoxville and East Tennessee in particular that we're what, 10 hours or 12 hour drive from three quarters of the country's population or something like that. Uh, but you know, why Manchester, Tennessee and what was the reception like from coffee County and the city of Manchester? Well, we scouted out a lot of, sites we we spent uh, quite a bit of time looking for places where we might possibly do this concept and by this time we wa- was AC Entertainment my company and Superfly Presents which was a young uh company in New Orleans mm-hmm. uh that I had met uh through producing concerts and we'd done a, a few projects together uh but at AC Entertainment, we've been doing outdoor concerts at the World's Fair Park since 1992. We've been doing hot summer nights. And the decision was made by the city of Knoxville to shut down the World's Fair Park mm-hmm. in order to build the convention center. And uh, suddenly, we did not have an outdoor space to present concerts. And th- that was a significant part of our business, the the summer touring business, which is you know especially then was almost exclusively outdoors mm-hmm. uh we were like what are we going to do now and we we did a small concert at, series at uh, Chilhowee Park and then we launched a festival up in western north carolina called Mountain Oasis mm-hmm. that was at a place called Deerfield mm-hmm. which was hugely successful in terms of attendance uh you know it was packed we had to turn thousands of people away and that was uh an indicator also that Hey, this is a this is an idea that has some legs to it, and uh, we started scouting around. My my partners at Superfly had, had experience working at New Orleans Jazz and Heritage Festival, uh, so we all kind and they had also had experience with fish festivals as far as attending. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they were genuine parts of the audience, and uh, and so we all kind of had this festival bug, and we started looking around the southeast, and that was the one parameter we had. We did make the decision that we wanted to do it in the southeastern United States. There were already smaller festivals up in the Northeast. 
There were festivals on the West Coast. We lived in the Southeast. We felt like the opportunity was here. Mm -hmm. This is another thing that defied conventional wisdom in the music business (laughs) uh, at this particular time. Um, The... um, so in looking around, uh, you know, there were a lot of things to take into consideration uh, logistically. Uh, there are a lot of great sites out there, but you have to go 20 miles down a two-lane road in order to get to them. Sure. Uh, that doesn't work. <laughs> Not with 100,000 people. <laughs> you know, well, or, or even with 20 or 30,000 really? people, you know, that that's that can be a very, very problematic Sure thing. So, so you know, we had a set of criteria. We started looking at sites and the word got out that we were looking at sites and a friend in Nashville called up and said, there's a place that you ought to check out in Manchester, Tennessee. They tried to do a festival there last year, or maybe it was the year before that. It wasn't successful, but the site is amazing. And they may be interested in trying to do it and recouping some of their losses from that year. So we went down and met with the landowner and uh, some representatives of the city to learn more about what they had done. The site was amazing, uh, not least because you've got like two entrances to it off the interstate Mm -hmm. and the distance off the interstate is relatively short. Sure. You know, like a a mile or a mile and a half. Yeah. So there's, um, there's actually three exits. Uh, if you count, you know, there's 110, 111 and 114. Mm -hmm. And, um, this enabled us to do a lot in terms of controlling the logistics as far as building the site, getting artists and staff in and out getting the audience in and out with the without these two things coming into you know conflict with one another in right. some way um it was a perfect site and they were willing uh, they they uh they had had a, a bad experience a disappointing experience with a festival called ichiku park um which ironically i had seen billboards for as I drove through the Southeast uh, back when it had, I don't remember the year now. I think it was 99, maybe. I've never, um, I've never heard, yeah, never heard of it. Well, <laughs> the headline acts were Iron Butterfly, Gary mm. Puckett, The Union Gap. I'm not sure if it was the Monkees or just Davy Jones from the Monkees. I think the, uh, the most contemporary act on the bill was Bachman Turner Overdrive. Wow. So okay. they had gone for a look at this real oldies concept. And, sure. And I think that was definitely an audience that was not inclined to camp in a field for the weekend. Sure. You know? <laughs> yeah, I, I always wonder about the reception from Manchester because – and it's, it's kind of changed over the years. You know, I know some folks who live near, near the festival, and most of them have a really uh, – a, a, a really – great opinion of the festival and then i noticed you know a few years in you, you drive through town and and all the you know you go through the walmart and all the all the uh all the employees have their tie-dye shirts on now they're just <laughs> totally leaning into it because it's black friday for manchester in a lot of ways you know oh it, it, it's a huge boost for for business in manchester there's sure. no especially if you're in the a business of uh, supplying provisions for people camping for four days. Sure, it's a it's a it's a big weekend. Yeah, you know the reception in Manchester was um, mostly very positive. 
Uh, it would have to be. Mm-hmm. Uh, you have to. Um, there, there's a lot of cooperation required if you're bringing, you know, uh, you know, eighty thousand people in to camp in, you know, a city of like thirteen thousand people sure. or something. You know, it's a, it's a, it's a, it it totally um, you know upends you know a lot of the services and structure sure. of a city that size and sure. and a county like a coffee county so uh you know we again one of the most important things that we did that I'm very proud of is we we engaged with the leaders in the community from the very beginning Good. we had many many meetings uh uh and this ultimately included of course the Tennessee Highway Patrol uh the Department of Transportation, right? Uh, and, and there, there were a lot of planning sessions as we prepared for the festival. Uh, I think, you know, sometimes I look back on it, and I think we we benefited from the fact that Ichiku Park had failed because I don't think anybody really believed us. You ah. know, I, I think there was a lot of skepticism that we were going to be able to sell the number of tickets that right. we did, and because we sold all of the tickets. On the internet, again, which was a radical concept back right. then, uh, and kind of under the radar without doing any advertising, nobody realized that we had already sold the tickets. Uh, you know, we, I, I didn't realize that myself, that they didn't realize it until we were in the mm. middle of one of those meetings. And and uh, someone asked, well, if you're going to sell all these tickets, don't you need to start advertising? And we're like, what no, tickets? <laughs> we're like, you don't understand. We've already sold the tickets. <laughs> And uh, I think that was an eye-opening moment, but but you know we were, we've always been very transparent, very upfront. You know we didn't try to pull the wool over anybody's eyes about any aspect of what we were doing. Uh, for us, it was a partnership, right? And we also took steps to give back to the community, Great. which we have done. Uh, you know, increasingly over the years. Uh, you know, that year we the the high school band was performing in uniforms that were literally thirty years old and falling off of mm-hmm. them, and we bought them new uniforms. Right. Um, because uh, you know we 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 had a very strong ethos that uh, that this needed to be good for the community if it was going to be successful for us. Mm. So so giving back to the community was uh, always part of the Bonnaroo ethos. And over the years, uh, we built a very strong and effective program that uh, I think was very beneficial for that community and also the surrounding region and even Knoxville mm. uh, because uh, over the years it spread you know beyond the region itself and and started to impact some of the surrounding communities it, but a- you know there's always naysayers you know mm. I mean there 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 are always people who you know for whom it's either disruptive or, you know, disturbing on any number of levels. You know, you'd hear all sorts of rumors about all of the wild things that were supposedly going on uh, out there, some of which were, you know, somewhat true, mm-hmm. and a lot of them were complete fabrications. Right. Uh, and, and, you know, so it was an ongoing dialogue and conversation to uh, to get to a place where, you know, we were really effective in working together. Well, it was without a doubt uh, a success right off the bat. I didn't make the first one, but I made the second one. And then I think I made the next 10 or 11 after that. Uh, and 
I, I'm gonna I, I'm gonna ask you about something that I had completely forgotten about until we started talking. Uh, Bonnaroo Northeast. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> that was a thing, right? It it was supposed to be. Well, it was supposed to be a thing. It did not materialize into a thing, right? Um, yeah, you know, I think it's as is the the tendency when one becomes very successful scale uh there was uh there was thought about you know where else can we do this right and um and you know there were we had a lot of internal debates about how to how to grow the festival how to uh you know how to make the most of this opportunity that we had and so there was one and only one thought about replicating Bonnaroo in another location. Mm -hmm. And we were going to do it out on Long Island uh, at a, uh, at a, at an old uh, air force base. Uh, you know, it was, it was, you know, theoretically an incredible site. Sure. Um, the, there was, there was another promoter that was also trying to do a festival on exactly the same site. Uh, they were doing it, two months before we were doing it. Mm. Um, in fact, they were doing it the weekend before Bonnaroo that year. Okay. Which I, I'm, I have to look back and see whether that was 03 or 04. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't remember. I don't either. Uh, I think it was 03, but um, the, uh, it, might, it may have been 04. Um, but, you know, it was, it, it it proved uh, politically insurmountable, mm. uh, but uh, you know, again, we were really lucky because the group that was in front of us, uh, I mean, they were literally out there building the site, you know, putting up stages, you know, two days away from opening the festival when they were told that they were not getting their permit. New York, man. New York. <laughs> so, uh, so at that particular point, you know, we're still over two months out uh, and we're just like, okay, we're out of here. Yeah. Uh, and and I think at the time we also made another really important decision that I'm very proud of, which is that Bonnaroo is in Tennessee, in Manchester, and a, a unique experience that cannot be replicated anyplace else. And we should focus our time and attention um, making that experience everything that it can be and not get distracted by, you know, all of these, uh, you know, all of this other stuff sure. that you can imagine doing, right. but, uh, you know, is usually infinitely more difficult than you think it's going to be. Well, you did get a little bit distracted because Vegas in 2004, 2005, when was the first one of those? Uh, that was... Is that 04? It was 04 or 05. I think it was 05, actually. Was it? 04 I, or 05. I, I went to the first one of those. I, I, I should get my timeline out. Uh, well, that's 20 something. years ago, man. Mm -hmm. I, can't, <laughs> I can't expect you to remember the whole thing. You've done so much. Oh, God. I forgot about that. 20 years ago. Yes. <laughs> but uh, Vegas, I, I was living in Los Angeles at the time, and I was at that point such a fan of of the Bonnaroo culture and such a fan of AC entertainment that that was kind of all the credibility Vegas needed for me to show up. It was programmed wonderfully. 
I thought the uh, the uh, UNLV stadium was set up great. The night shows, though, in the casinos, those were awesome. Yes. <laughs> All, that was a, I, I, to me, it felt like a very well done festival that did not detract from what Bonnaroo was or even try to boilerplate what Bonnaroo was doing. It was something completely different on a completely different side of the country, but still felt like it carried on just a, a, a little bit of the spirit of Bonnaroo. Well, that's great to hear. And when I say we we didn't want to get distracted, uh, we we were certainly into getting distracted about the idea of creating other festival right. concepts. Uh, you know, we, we definitely had the festival bug and, and you know, we love Bonnaroo and, and we're f- totally focused on making the most of that, but we wanted to explore other ideas as well. Sure. And so Vegas was really the first of those and we did it for three years mm. and it was difficult. I'm uh, sure. You know, it, um, um, on many levels, it felt like a tremendous success, mm-hmm. and uh, and it was not like a huge loser. It just wasn't a huge winner. It was like this enormous amount of work. I'm sure it was uh, basically for nothing. Yeah, <laughs> and and, uh, and you know, I I think you know the di- there are now some very successful festivals in in Las Vegas, and um, you know, so it's definitely possible to do it, but. You know, we didn't quite have the chemistry right there for whatever reason. I think the the experience was great, but we just couldn't quite get uh, people to travel to Vegas to be a part of it. And I don't know how much of it had to do also with the time of year. I mean, mm-hmm. we were we were doing it um, like Halloween weekend yeah. in Vegas, which you know seemed good on paper. Uh, but you know, there, there was, there was something that inhibited people's, uh, interest or ability to, uh, to travel to Vegas in the numbers that we needed them to. Yeah. It, it, it seemed like a little bit of a grown up, a, a more grown up crowd, uh, because Vegas is expensive and, you know, camping in a field in Bo- at Bonnaroo for $300 is pretty affordable for college kids and all that. Um, and well, then the- that, you know, it's funny that you mentioned that because that's one of the things that we realized about Vegas really quickly is that the ticket to the festival was the cheapest part of the experience. <laughs> <laughs> it was, yeah. it was a, like 120 bucks a day or something. It just wasn't, it wasn't too bad. It was a hell of a bargain. <laughs> right. On the other hand, your hotel room was a different matter. Yeah. And, and getting to the festival too. It was th- exactly yeah, 30 minutes away from the strip, which right. is where most people were staying. And those can be 30 long minutes in yeah. Las Vegas. I mean, traffic yes. in Vegas, uh, back then and i assume it's probably even worse today i'm sure it was just a a bear trey anastasio playing with widespread panic i mean you you you're not going to see that again probably and you're not going to see daft punk again in particular especially not the pyramid show i don't think so um. yeah it was a (laughs) it was a spectacular model it felt good i'm it, it it did seem like a hard scrabble endeavor for your for you guys and your team, but you know I also thought about it. Um, you know, how big was was AC Entertainment before Bonnaroo started? Because I assume you were you were booking you know and you're booking in Knoxville. Were you booking the Orange Peel at the time too in Asheville? Well, the Orange Peel didn't open until 2004. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. Okay. So we we did book the we've booked the Orange Peel from the day that it opened, but uh, but that was 04. Okay. Uh, we were doing. Um, we were booking a club in Asheville called Be Here Now during the '90s, mm. which was a precursor to the Orange Peel. Okay. A really great, 
great club down there uh, on Biltmore Avenue. And uh, and after that, we uh, we did some stuff at a place called the Asheville Music Hall uh-huh. or Zone, I think the Asheville Music Zone, I believe, okay. was the name. That was uh, that was a little more problematic. It was uh, you know I don't, I didn't feel like we were able to uh, like present the music on the level that we like to do it. But uh, the Orange Peel, of course, was a game changer. So sure. Uh, and you know these, what I assume, perhaps incorrectly, that that Bonnaroo was a, a major accelerator of your company, which has been around for a long time. I guess did you? Elagaroos is kind of the beginning of your career that I know about. Right. What happened before that that led up to Elagaroos, and then what did the what happened after that until until you know Bonnaroo hits. Well, up until Ella Garuz, I essentially promoted concerts as a hobby. Mm. I uh, I started doing it when I was in college. Uh, I was a music fan. Uh, I I, I love to go to concerts, and uh, I also love many artists that uh, wouldn't be coming to Knoxville otherwise. So, um, you know, I I I just started um, started presenting shows in 1979 and and I really did it completely for fun uh I mean we we set up like a real company and stuff like that but I never uh seriously imagined that it would be my career until uh Elegaroos was launched really but but during the 80s uh there were a lot of concerts uh you know I was probably doing I don't know, maybe a dozen concerts a year at the Bijou, at the Laurel mm. Theater, uh, some at the Tennessee Theater, and uh, yeah, I just kept doing it. And uh, how does that work as a you know as a, a a new promoter? Do you take all the financial risk and you say, "Hey, uh, Bijou, uh, I'd like to I'd like to rent your space for the night. I'm bringing a band. You you make money off the bar. Is that how it starts?" <laughs> Well, um, yeah, more or less. It, it, it can be different in different situations. Um, my first concert, um, I rented the Laurel Theater for ten dollars, and uh, which I thought was a fortune in nineteen seventy nine. The artist was coming through town anyway. No one had ever heard of him except me. Uh, he he was a, a cellist, um, and. Um, this is the first concert I actually produced, okay. and um, the um, you know he he was willing to play for a percentage of the door, and uh, so I, I made up a flyer with a magic marker, and you know I copied it at the one of the UT library copy machines, and uh, we charged three dollars a ticket, and it sold. 200 tickets even though nobody had ever heard of this guy and we had 600 bucks and i ended up making i was splitting the door with the artist and i ended up making a couple of hundred dollars which was fantastic yeah ten dollars was a lot too yeah (laughs) yeah and then um and so it just evolved you know step by step from there i didn't i didn't have a lot of money uh by any means um but i so i had to be very cautious and, and you know there were also like REM, um, you know, in the, in the early day, I was I had a radio gig, right? I, I was working at WUOT, and I, I was um, I was doing some of their, you know, I was a, a 
hosting some of their classical music programming, but okay. I was also doing these late night programs with rock and roll and stuff. And people would find out I was playing their record on the air. Mm. Um, you know, and so people would call me up looking for a place to play. So one of the first conversation, I don't remember who called who, but REM had a single out called, uh, Radio Free Europe. And, uh, their, one of their managers at the time was a fellow named Jefferson Holt. And we had a conversation and he was like, well, where should we play when we come to Knoxville? And, uh, so they came to Knoxville and played at the place which was on Cumberland Avenue. I don't know what's there now because Cumberland's changed so much. Yeah, I don't, I don't recognize but, it. But they came in and played. Um, I didn't promote the show. Uh, I just uh, you know, put them in touch with the place. Gotcha. And they came in, and I think they played for 12 people that night. It was right. me and five of my friends right. and six people that we didn't know. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, that was R.E.M.'s first gig in town. Wow. And uh, so so all of these things, you know, I—, I I wasn't like pursuing it. I, I was in school, right. uh, so I wasn't uh, pursuing it as as like a a, a, a job. Mm. Uh, but when opportunities presented themselves that were doable and and felt like uh, fun or mostly fun and a and a risk that uh, was reasonable, and I had some friends, you know, who would chip in to help me as well. That's great. Uh, we just. Uh, you know, kept doing things, and then gradually, it uh, it started taking over. So I could actually hear the Garth Brooks concert from my yard here the <laughs> night that it, that he played at Neyland Stadium, and uh, I, I I couldn't hear it. Well, I said, I believe that's Rodeo, <laughs> the song that he opened with. I was like, I can't believe I'd never heard a concert at Neyland Stadium, so I didn't know you could hear it from here. I knew you right. could hear the fireworks <laughs> when they scored a touchdown. Which kind of ruins it, by the way, when you're watching it on your TV 10 seconds later and you hear the fireworks go <laughs> off. You're like, oh, we scored. Great. Yeah. But I, but I, you could hear the, the Garth Brooks concert from here. And then I saw a video the next day of him professing his love for Knoxville, Tennessee. And he said, I used to come back here and play Ella Garou's and whenever it was in the <laughs> 90s. That's pretty special, Ashley. If you've got one of the <laughs> most prolific recording artists and most prolific touring artists of all time, you know, remembering uh, one of your venues, that's got to be that is fantastic. He actually, uh, uh, Garth actually sings about Elegaroos in one of his songs. I did not uh, know in that. the mid nineties. Yeah, so he he name checks the club. Love it. Uh, he only played there twice, actually. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> made an impact on the him. <laughs> the uh the the first time he came in as part of a songwriter's night uh he didn't even have his first record out and he came over with three other songwriters and played i think there were maybe 20 or 30 people in the audience uh it was not one of our bigger nights mm. and then he came back in I think it must have been early July of 89 or 90 i, I i'd have to look at the at the brochures to see, I've still got all the newsletter. We used to send out a newsletter all the time, but uh, his his record had just come out at that particular point, and uh, and so he came in and played on a Sunday night to a good crowd, but a good crowd of Delegaroos was two hundred people, right? And uh, and I don't think it quite sold out. It was uh, you know a hair shy of, of a sellout, but it was still a good turnout on a Sunday, mm -hmm. and then the rest is history. Yeah, and then you know Vince Gill played. Uh, Elegaroos, uh, a lot of uh, you know some amazing artists played Elegaroos over the years. That was John Prine would come in and play, 
you know, two or three nights in a row. Uh, Wynton Marsalis would come in and play two or three nights in a row, uh, sometimes two shows in one night. And, uh, you know, Leon Russell, when wow. he was staging a comeback. And yeah. there, there were a lot of, you know, John McLaughlin, the, you know, the amazing uh, jazz guitarists uh, performed. There, there, were, there were so many special nights at Ella's. And for me, that was my... That was my pivotal experience in, in really stepping into um, the business fully because it was it was an all-immersive experience. Uh, I met a lot of artists. Sure. I met a lot of, of um, agents in the business. Right. And, uh, and, and, you know, it was kind of like, a, you know, my graduate school, my apprenticeship, except I was apprenticed to myself. Right. Um, and... Uh, even though the club itself ultimately was not successful, it proved to be the launching pad for so many things. I mean, right. obviously, AC Entertainment came out of that a few months after we closed. But, you know, my relationship with Widespread Panic started at Ella Garou's. Mm. And, and, you know, some 12 years, 10 years, 11, 12 years later, Widespread Panic's the first band to say yes to playing Bonnaroo. Really? And they came to the site, you know, and, and, really? I, and I still remember they're like, we think you're totally crazy, but we'll do it. <laughs> and, and and so, you know, the, the this is a business of, of those kinds of relationships. Right. You know, uh, you never know what, uh, you know, where one thing might lead over the course of time. So, um, so yeah, Ella's was, was pivotal. And it was an amazing time in Knoxville too. You know, we, you know, it was a special time in the music business because I think it was before ticket prices had become so high and before guarantees had become so high, but right. before it was so expensive to tour, and um, you know, it, it was a a special window that enabled uh, these things to happen, and we had. You know, reggae, you know, all sorts of reggae bands from sure. Jamaica and, you know, amazing artists from Africa, King Sonny Ade and Baba yeah. Mall and all these great artists were coming in. You know, I think King Sonny Ade's band took up half the room. You I know, bet. It was like a 24-piece band. Yeah. And, uh, you know, so it, it was it was an amazing time. I, I still look back on it and, uh, you know, kind of pinch myself because it seems uh, almost like a a dream that had happened. When did uh, when did El Garouz close? It closed on December the eighteenth, nineteen ninety. Okay, in two the years. The Goo Goo Dolls. The Goo Goo Dolls were the, were the la last <laughs> were the last show. <laughs> so nineteen ninety two, Hot Summer Night starts. Uh, for me, at I, so I, I I'm not sure. I, I I may have undersold it when I said that Bonnaroo changed my life. But my first <laughs> concert was Dave Matthews Band at uh, at World's Fair Park. In, oh, wow. In 1994. I was awesome. in fourth grade. Wow. First ever concert <laughs> I ever went to. Uh, how did you end up at a Dave Matthews show as a fourth grader? I pestered my dad to take me. You know why? Because Desiree was opening for him. <laughs> and that song was on the radio. was on uh, Star yeah. 93.1. <laughs> and I, that one got me there. Wow. And then... <laughs> But then I went back to the what Counting Crows, Jewel, Steve Miller Band, all those, all throughout the nineties. Uh, oh, sure, no doubt. When when you know on their first record, man. Uh, you know, Offspring, yeah, 
uh, before the Eagles reunited. You know, there was Joe Walsh and Glenn Fry. Yes. You know, which which was essentially a, an Eagles reunion without uh, Don Henley. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, Tim McGraw and Faith Hill when they were just becoming a couple and touring together. Um, you know, Willie Nelson, Al Green. Um, there were so many. <laughs> so you're getting your doctorate now uh, uh, in, in in music promotion, I guess, at this point. Oh, my gosh. Uh, we learned a lot from doing those concerts at the World's Fair Park. They were wonderful and a, a huge uh, a huge part of, of the community. And it was a bummer when they went away. Uh, but the fact that they... Uh, are able to to happen again is is good. I'm 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 sad that they shut down the uh, you know shut down the the lawn there for so long. But it seems like they're trying to come back a little bit. And uh, the amphitheater there, I've always wondered about that. Is that a viable music venue? Well, we used it during Big Ears this year, right? And um, and it felt great, yeah. uh, really. I it, it's a tricky venue to use acoustically uh, or acoustically, logistically? Uh, acoustically and technically, hmm. uh, because it, it is such a wide, uh, you know, it's like a fan. Yeah, you know, it's very wide, and so uh, getting good sound that covers all of the seating area, it, it, it's. Um, it's tricky to use. I think it's when it's done well, it's fabulous. Awesome. So, you know, I do want to, I do want to talk about big ears since it's the most recent, uh, thing that, that seems to have, have gotten your attention. Uh, we were behind you in line at the, uh, at the, uh, co-op one day, and this was probably six or eight years ago, whenever the first or second big ears came out. And my wife knows you from the glowing body or something Uh like that. And, uh, she said, "Hey, and you were picking up a copy of the New York Times, and and uh, I could just—you were so proud. It's like <laughs> Big Ears is in the New York Times today. They're talking about my baby. <laughs> yeah, I was I was very proud of that. I actually remember, I I, I remember uh, being there and showing. I was like, I could I could not believe my eyes. Actually, it was uh, it was fantastic. I, I remember that moment very well." <laughs> And I remember her being there, actually. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so uh, this thing that you've built with Big Ears is very different than what you did with with Bonnaroo. You've taken your, uh, you know, now your hometown where you went to college and 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 you transform it into something very, very cool and almost recognizable. When you see Knoxville downtown during Big Ears, it's like this looks like Knoxville, but there's something a little bit different going on right now. And I'm not sure what it is. I can't put my finger on it. Uh, but you did build something that the rest of the world has noticed. Um, I'm just not cool enough to know any of the, uh, any of the names on the card, man. Oh, that's not true. <laughs> Wilco. That's not true. Wilco. You know Wilco. You know Bela Fleck. Yeah. You know Patty Smith. Yeah. You know Kim Gordon and Sonic Youth. Eve and- Toomer went to went to school uh, with yeah, them. Eve. <laughs> Yeah, there, there's uh, there's a lot of you know I, I I think the the challenge with big ears in a way is because it, it there are so many different genres represented, um so so it's uh it brings together a lot of people from a lot of different music worlds sure, but uh, you know I I always think that once people dive into the experience at least my experience from what I hear from them once they dive into the experience they're sold it's it's uh 
it's a lot of fun. That was my experience. Uh, not not knowing not knowing what I had planned for the weekend. Just go and trust that Ashley has chosen <laughs> stuff that's going to be a good time for it. Or even more to the point, if if you don't like something and and don't don't be under the impression that I'm a huge fan of every single thing I book at big mm. ears. I'm I'm trying to book an experience for people. Gotcha. I, I'm not trying to book an experience for me. Mm. Uh, although um, I am in a way, but it, but it's 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 not just about me. I'm trying to book an experience, and so the the whole thing is you know if you find yourself in something that you're not enjoying. There's five other things going on. Go, yeah. go check it out. Yeah, you know, and and usually I I would like to think that it's programmed in such a way that uh, even if four of them aren't your cup of tea, two of them probably would be. Sure. If you uh, if you find yourself there. Well, I I am very excited that it's back on track, and hopefully, do we have it again next year? Yeah, we're I'm very deep into the booking for 2023 right now. Okay. Did we? Uh, do we have? Did you share a piece of news this week that we? Uh, or no? Oh, uh, we we did announce the economic impact uh, of the festival, which is something that we've uh, we've been trying to put the meat on the bones of for quite some time. Um, and, and you of, know, of big ears, of big ears. Okay, yeah. Which uh, I mean, the news came out. It was a it was a great number, thirty six point one million dollars this Excellent. year. Uh, we we enlisted a company from Austin, Texas. Uh, that some of our compatriots, uh, world, uh, you know, all throughout the country, have used to uh, to get an economic analysis of the benefits that their festivals have in cities. Gotcha. And um, and so, um, you know, this came about over the really over the course of time because you know I'm, I mean, for me, there's so much more to big ears than the economic impact. Right. Uh, I'm I'm. I'm really glad that it's there and it's very important and it's a very important part of our story to tell, but, uh, but there's a lot more to the story to tell, but we did start realizing from friends of ours or, or, you know, business owners downtown, uh, after the festival, I, I would go to eat at Pete's or, uh, tomato head or somewhere for lunch and be told that, uh, you know, this was the biggest weekend that we've ever had in the history of our business. Uh, you know, and, you know, Rick Dover, when he opened the Hyatt Place mm-hmm. uh, downtown after that first year, he was like, it's our biggest weekend of the year. That's great. And so, you know, these were, you know, um, amazing stories. Sorry about no that. No worries. Uh, you know, we, we were hearing these stories and, and it was like, well, you know, we, we should be sharing this. Uh, and, 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 and trying to, uh, trying to get, wrap our, uh, brains around, you know, exactly, you know, what are the benefits of this besides presenting amazing music all throughout the weekend? And we ultimately turned to Angelou Economics. We, we, we worked with Visit Knoxville on it in 2018 and 19. Uh, but we found that the calculators that they typically use for, uh, events didn't really capture our event mm. because we have um we have a really unique event you know it's there aren't too many situations where are too many events in Knoxville where 
72% of your audience is coming from out of town. Right. They're basically staying within a close proximity of one another and they're living there for the end. You know, they're not going off somewhere else to experience an event. They're having breakfast, lunch, dinner. They're staying at the hotel. They're shopping at the shops. All of the activities are really focused within this, you know, mostly walkable downtown footprint. Right. Um, now, some of them stay outside of downtown, mm-hmm. uh, you know, at various motels and, and hotels and Airbnbs. Sure. And so on. But, uh, you know, it, it's it's a fully immersive experience where the the you know, the, the patterns and activities of those who are attending are, you know, very different from many events. And so we wanted to uh, to try to tell that as part of the story because the festivals keeps growing uh, and, and we want to see it continue to grow. We, uh, you know, this was a big year, but we, since 2014, We've seen an annual increase every year of somewhere between 15, 25% wow. uh, attendance to the point where this year, after having canceled 2020 and having uh, not doing one in 2021, we saw like a 37% increase in attendance over 2019. So even though we didn't do the festivals those year, the pattern continued, you know. Yeah, and um, and, and it, it's it's also a unique opportunity. It's kind of like a Bonnaroo, you know. It's kind of like how Bonnaroo could not be replicated on Long Island or really any place else in the country. You know, I think you know Bonnaroo for me is very much a sense of place. It's a, it's it's a very particular experience in a very special place. And having an event like that, it's hard. It's a, it's a very difficult thing to capture. They can't just be created. Uh, you know, I, I can tell you of countless times of trying to create an event that has that kind of impact and it falling short of the mark. I'm sure. Um Itchy because it's hard. Park. So yeah, exactly. <laughs> so so once you find yourself, uh, you know, with 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 something like this that has this kind of resonance with an audience. I mean, this is my world, and I cannot resist seeing what the potential of it is. So, so that's uh, that's why it's my baby, and you know, I th- I think. Um, you know, one one of the interesting things that I've also recognized about myself over the years is I got into this because I'm a huge music fan. You know, I I I, I am a huge music fan. Even at my age, I I go to I, I go to New York to go to concerts. I I I still actively go to concerts on a regular basis. It's one of the ways that I love to experience the world and culture and and so on. But I do not necessarily produce festivals because of wanting to present the music. That, you know, I do want to present the music, but to me, a festival is something more than that. And what I've become really attracted to and what really moves me 
on a personal level is the way that a festival builds community and brings people together and, um, you know, transcends, you know, a lot of, you know, traditional barriers or whatever. But it is about the impact that, it, you know, culture transforms communities, uh, you know, it always has. You know, we still go to Europe to visit the, the you know, the historic cultures sure. of great European cities. I mean, right. that, that, that is, uh, that's, you know, one of the essences of what it means to be human. And so, you know, the way culture can transform a community, the way that it can inspire people, the way that it can open up possibilities in terms of, you know, what you can do with your life, you know, how, how you know, careers that you can pursue. Um, that's the thing that excites me more than anything else at this particular point. Um, I love the music and I love presenting music. I love, but if it was just down to that, I'd just go see it, you know? Yes. <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm very proud to, to share a city with you, honestly. <laughs> and I, um, and like I said, you know, earlier before we started, you know, the experience, my first, my first Bonnaroo, I, I didn't know life could be that much fun. <laughs> and so I think that you uh, have certainly delivered on, you know, not just introducing people to new music, but introducing them to experiences that are meaningful and lasting and do impact communities and, and, and cultures. And I'm, I'm, I'm so proud to, to, to oh. have you around, man. Well, thank you. Thank you. That's, um, uh, it's definitely what, uh, you know, what I imagine, you know, I, you know, having been a music fan myself all my life, you know, when I, uh, when I think about the impact of something like Bonnaroo, I like to think about, you know, what would it be like to be like a 15 year old music nerd who's been living the first 15 years of your life in Manchester, Tennessee, and wake up one morning <laughs> and hear that Radiohead's coming to your town. Sure. You know, that's like a, Oh wow, Boba! Right, and, and it also it, it opens up the world. Uh, you know, it, it creates a connection with the with the world that mm -hmm. uh, can, you know can be really meaningful and really inspirational for people. Live music is a heck of a lot of fun, man. It is, it is, and <laughs> and I'm so uh, so grateful that that uh, that we did this. But I got to know, like, what what are you going to do to keep busy now that now that things have. Uh, now that things have started to cool off for you, well, I've I've managed to turn uh, developing big ears into pretty much a full time job. How fun! <laughs> <laughs> so I, I I have this uh, this gift or disease or whatever, but affliction. Uh, you know, when, whenever I whenever I throw myself into something, I tend to uh, to to become fairly uh, committed if not obsessive about it. And there's a lot to explore here. I think uh, one of the things that excited me the most about Big Years this year is we brought in so many of these artists to work with young people in the community. So awesome. we had we had the Prez Hall team and Aurora Nealon and Damon Locks to come in and, you know, work with, uh, you know, young people, you know, the marching bands at Austin East and at Fulton High and with, you know, students, you know, to do storytelling. We got Caddy Wampus to make puppets. Yeah. We did the parade. The parade was awesome. Uh, you know, so all of this, uh, you know, like I say, what really turns me on is this development of community that evolves around culture. And so 
that's an infinite thing to explore. You know, it's, um, you know, it, it can occupy every minute of every day if you let it. Well, I'm glad that you have <laughs> the cycles to focus on it now, man. Well, thanks. Me too. <laughs> well, I really appreciate you being here and thanks for doing this. And uh, keep thanks it- for having me. I'm, uh, I'm really, I enjoyed the conversation a lot. As you can tell, I like to talk. Me too. I love to hear you. Uh, I love to hear you talk, Ashley. Thank you very much. Thank you. Wow. I got chill bumps still, guys. Thank you for being here. Thanks for checking out SOS Podcast. Find us on Patreon, patreon.com slash south of scruffy. If you want to support what we're doing here, check us out on Instagram too, at south of scruffy. Again, thank you guys for being here. Take care of each other and take care of yourselves. Party on. Pitchwire, play me out. <laughs>